0: All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather together again in your presence as your flock. And, Lord, we thank you for your Son, that his shed blood has brought us out of the realm of darkness into the glorious light, into his camp, Lord, that will never perish. And, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us understand your word at a deeper level this morning, that we may be more conformed to the image of your Son. And we also ask, Lord, that if there are any listening over the internet who don't know you, Lord, that they would repent and trust in Christ for salvation. And we ask that you would accomplish these things through us, even this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone. This morning, we're back in 1 Corinthians 2. And remember last time we left off in verse 5? So we're going to be talking about God's wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's very important with Paul because he's showing... The Corinthians that they can 't be relying upon their wisdom, their Sophia, and their power, and so i 'm going to give you a little outline to remind you where we 've come from and where we left off. Remember in verse five in First Corinthians chapter two, Paul said this he said, "So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Remember we talked about wisdom and power they 're used somewhat in a synonymous manner in the New Testament. So what's interesting is the contrast really is whether their faith was of men or of God, okay? Who's responsible at the end of the day for our salvation? The Corinthians, they were boasting in their own Sophia, their own wisdom, and they were basically saying it was of men. They were boasting in their own having arrivedness. if that, that's not a term, but I'm coining that. They, they believed that they had arrived to spiritual maturity because they thought that they were smarter than everyone else. But of course, Paul's reminding them that it's actually of God. Notice also in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, God acted according to his own wisdom. And also, Paul had to, what he had to do is transfer wisdom from the philosophical, rhetorical term into a historical and soteriological one. Soteriological would be salvation oriented. Okay, so in other words, the idea that the Corinthians had of wisdom was one in the philosophical world that was man made. They boasted in people being able to speak well, being able to use their rhetorical skills to wow one another and win debates. But Paul transfers the term. That's not spiritual. What's spiritual is believing the gospel of a crucified Lord, of Jesus Christ. That's actually being spiritual. And, of course, that can only be believed by the power of God. And so Paul had to do a 180 on them. He had to turn their complete way of thinking around to think more in lines with the gospel. Now let me show you the section we're going to be heading in this morning. Verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2, we're going to see is in three portions. The first portion is verses 6 through 10a, where it's referring to God's wisdom for the elect versus those who are blind. So what we're going to see is those who can actually see the gospel are God's elect, and those who are blind to it are the natural men of this world. They can't perceive those things. The next section, 10b through 13, Paul attributes the Holy Spirit as the one who had let us, that is God's elect, in on the mystery of the gospel. Okay, so that so therefore you and I shouldn't boast. Why? Well, because it was the Holy Spirit who did it. It wasn't us. It wasn't because I was smarter than my neighbor, okay, that I believed in Jesus Christ. It was actually because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in the third part, verses 14 through 16, we're going to see this contrast between the natural and the spiritual man. Okay, and the spiritual man are those who are hearing from the Holy Spirit, who are the elect. And the natural man, he's the one who cannot perceive the things of God. Okay, in fact, these are the ones who would boast merely in human wisdom. Okay, so now let's start in the first verses here, where we see Paul spoke wisdom from God. The verses 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes this. He says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. First of all, I want to point out the idea of maturity here because Paul uses it in two different ways. First of all, he contrasts those who are mature, and actually, I should say, he combines the idea of being mature with being spiritual. And so in this section, chapter 2, it has to do with salvation. Only the mature or the spiritual can perceive the things of God. But what's interesting is in chapter 3, verse 1, he calls the Corinthians mere infants. And in fact, he says that they are still of the flesh. But yet he expects that the Corinthians are saved. And so in that respect, what's interesting is they're saved, but they're not acting like those who are saved. That's the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? So when he calls them infants don 't think that he 's saying that they 're not saved, or when he says that they 're acting like they 're in the flesh, the problem is, is they 're not acting according to their calling, and so that 's why he 's written this to and remember friends, God uses means to change the elect okay so even though they 're saved, God is going to use these words to change their way of thinking so that they may become conformed to the image of christ okay but that 's how mature is used it 's really synonymous with spiritual in this section. The other thing I want to point out is this idea of the rulers of this age. There's some debate. Are the rulers of this age, are they the kings and the governors, you know, merely fleshly men of this world, or are they the stoichia and the heavenly host, the fallen angels, to come? And there's been some debate about that. I think the context here is it's referring to the former. That is regular men who are governors and kings. And the the evidence that I have for that is notice the term is used down here again. And notice what Paul had said. He says, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Okay? So they didn't have cognitive understanding of what? The gospel. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So I think the context supports that it, in fact, are, it's the earthly rulers that he's referring to there. The other line of reasoning or piece of evidence that I have for that is, notice it says they're the ones who are passing away. Do you remember that term we talked about back in the chapter 1, ghetto? it literally means that they're being abolished. They're being done away with. And so the idea here is this is happening in the present tense. So Geo in the present tense means that they are in the process of being abolished. Okay? Just think about it, friends. As men and women who are in charge die off, this world is passing away. And every moment that goes by, we're getting closer to the reign of Messiah. And so God wears all of us out like garments. And one day only he and his kingdom will exist okay so this order is passing away and the world is more culpable because now this great salvation has come that's why the book of hebrews says how will we survive if we neglect so great a salvation right and that's come, and so people are even more culpable so anyway that's another indicator though that's what's being referred to our physical rulers on the scene of history right here and now the other thing i want to point out is this term for hidden the term in the greek is apokrypto and it's in the perfect tense now why is that important Anytime you see something in the perfect tense, if you're doing a study, remember, you can find this information in a concordance. You look the term up in the English, it would give you the Greek and it would tell you what tense it's in. And the perfect tense is usually something fairly significant because it's referring to something that happened in the past, it was completed, that's why it's called perfect, okay, in other words, it's not ongoing, the effect was completed to such an extent that its effect is still with us today. And so the idea here is that God's revelation was hidden in some point in the past, probably eternity past. God knows when it actually happened. And this idea of his gospel, has, his presenting it to the world, has to do with both revealing and concealing. He has concealed it to those who are perishing, the reprobate. And how did he conceal it from them? He just let them be who they are. Because natural man can't perceive those things. So all he did is he just didn't pour his grace upon them. So just remember, though, the act of God giving us revelation has two aspects of it. It's concealing and revealing. The revealing goes to the elect where he pours his grace upon them, enabling them to perceive and also believe. But to the reprobate, those whom he will not pour his grace upon, he merely just lets them be who they are. And therefore, they can't claim that he took a soft heart and made it hard. No, because a natural man's heart is already hard. That's the idea. Okay? So, again, friends, the only way we can understand these things is from the Spirit. Okay, now, uh, God's truth, friends, has always been unseen by this age. And in verses 9 through 10, Paul continues the thought. He says, but just as it is written... Now, here we come to more than likely a passage that he has taken from Isaiah 64 and 65. And he kind of combines them. He uh, takes them and puts them together. And Paul continues. He says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And here again, he's taking it from Isaiah 64.4 and Isaiah 65.17, and he's using Isaiah to prove that God's plan of redemption is not perceptible to the unregenerate. By the way, I want to. who had the Isaiah? Did I give the Isaiah passage out to anyone? What I want to do is I want to use Isaiah 6, because in Isaiah 6 he also talks about this idea of Isaiah going out to a people who are perceiving or looking, but they don't perceive. They're hearing, but they never hear. And that's because God has left them to their natural means. Yeah, go ahead and read that. This is the calling of Isaiah and the outflow from it. Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Thanks, Jim. So there we see seeing and hearing, not just in the physical sensations of light going through your eyes or sound waves hitting the ear, but seeing and hearing in a salvific way. And of course, natural man can't do that. And so in some sense, God has sent Isaiah. In one sense, he's to proclaim a message to God's elect. He'll always keep a remnant. But in another sense, those in Israel who are hearing Isaiah's message, now they're much more culpable because they're hearing the word of the Lord, but yet they'll reject it. And so in some sense, God is using Isaiah to heap judgment upon those who are rejecting it, specifically those in Judah, And in 586, of course, we see that they end up being taken into Babylonian captivity, which is God's wrath poured out upon them then. So now let's continue on. And I want to talk about this term "for." There's a little bit of a debate on this. And I don't know if you have a Bible you can mark in, but I think that this would be better rendered but. And, in fact, the new, UBS, the United Bible Societies, version 4, and Nessel-Allen's 27th edition has day here. So day would be here, which is typically translated, but. And it's what's called an adversative. In other words, there's a contrast that's going on. Okay, And why is that important? Well, because the contrast, friends, is between this verse here, which is talking about, from Isaiah, natural man which cannot perceive the things that are prepared for God. Well, that's contrasted with those where, in fact, the gospel has been revealed through the Spirit. Okay, so there's this great contrast. So it's not an explanatory for, it's rather a contrasting but. Okay, they can't see it, but we can. And who gets the glory? Well, the Holy Spirit does, and therefore it's of God. So again, we see the idea of salvation is completely of God. And it's interesting, as I was studying this passage for this Sunday, the more and more I study, the more and more I see God's election all over the the Scriptures. Okay, It's it's a doctrine, friends, that's everywhere. Why? Because it's inundated with God's grace. The core of God's grace is his election of those who, in fact, will be saved. We see God's wisdom then is revealed by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to talk again about this passage, the same verse that we just looked at. This term revealed, Gordon Fee makes an interesting insight that this term comes from this Greek verb, and it actually became a technical one for the divine revelation of certain supernatural secrets. And I want to read these to you. Some examples of that. For instance, in Psalm ninety-eight two, who had that verse? Oh, Mary Alice. What you'll see, sorry, Bob. What you'll see in this passage is that God has revealed His supernatural acts to the world, and therefore all flesh are culpable. Why? Because they've seen it. Okay. Yet
1: the only ones that go against the Sunday school earliest because they get the verses.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. Yeah.
2: The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed
0: his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Wow. That faithfulness there, that term that was used, that's probably chesed. That's that loving kindness. And um, I'll be making an application at the end here again about cassette, this loving kindness that God pours upon his people. It's synonymous, Bob has talked about this, with God's mercy and his grace. And apart from this cassette, God's covenant love, his mercy and his grace that he's poured upon us, none of us could be saved. And, and, And so even when we're disobedient, it's only because his cassette, his covenant love, for the sake of his name, that he remembers us and we are saved and therefore we persevere. So very important. And so that had to do with God's revelation there. We also see the same thing in Daniel chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. And I don't know who I gave that to. Um, oh, it was Larry up here. So you're going to see again this term um, apocalypsin used for, uh, in, in the Septuagint of Daniel 2.22 for God's revelation here.
2: He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power, and you have made known to me what we asked of you. And you have made known to us, but us, the dream of the king.
0: Yeah, so remember in the context here, friends, Nebuchadnezzar, remember he was the king who had that dream. And he's going to kill his uh, servants if they can't give him the the interpretation. Of course, Daniel saves their bacon. I don't mean to be... I, you know, I guess that's probably a bad thing to say when we're talking about Daniel. <laughs> but nonetheless, he saves them, right? And uh, <laughs> that would be not kosher. But um, Daniel understands. <laughs> he gets the interpretation because God gave it to him. And so another this is another passage, friends, that sh- clearly shows us that God is the one who reveals things. So it's not upon the human... Because the natural man can't do it. God has to be the one that revealed it. Also notice what Larry read. He talked about in Daniel two twenty three both the wisdom and the power of God. And it's interesting because that's exactly what Paul's talking about in this section. Where does true wisdom and power come from? And remember we talked about the term hendiadis through Two, one, or you know, two through one, or one through two, rather, sorry. You get one idea through two words. It's really the same thing. Power and wisdom are used synonymously. And Paul is probably borrowing that even from the Old Testament. Remember, that's what's in his noggin as he's teaching. So again, the point is that God is the one who reveals it, and therefore he should get all the glory. Oh, notice here it says, even the depths of God. We're going to be moving into a section where Paul is laying out the fact that only God knows the thoughts of God. And only like understands like. It would be a Greek philosophical term. Like begets like, or like understands like. Okay, that was an actual phrase in Greek philosophy. And the idea there is only God knows the thoughts of God, and therefore man can't understand them, and therefore they have to be revealed by God, and therefore he gets all the glory. That's the logic that we're going to be seeing here. But first of all, I want to show you this passage in Romans 8, 26 or 27, and this is talking about this very concept that how the Holy Spirit understands God the Father and and also Christ as well. because And this is, by the way, a powerful indicator that there's a trinity because one is understanding the thoughts of the other because they're united, they're one. okay. And I want to talk about this. Let me read the passage and I'll show you how it relates. Romans 8, 26-27, Paul wrote this there. He said, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness... For we do not know how to pray as we should. Okay, but let me just stop there. Well, let me just read, I guess. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. This idea, friends, of interceding is the idea of the Holy Spirit becoming our parakletos, our advocate, our counselor. And we see this in John 14, 26, where Jesus is leaving and he promises to send the parakletos, this helper. I think it's called in our English versions. Well, what's interesting is Jesus is the original parakletos. It literally means advocate or counselor. So if you lived in Israel and you were wealthy in those days, you may have on your family account someone on retainer who would be an advocate, who would be like your lawyer. And if your family was wealthy enough this person would be on retainer so that if your children got in trouble, the advocate would stand to defend them. Or you got yourself in trouble, they would stand to defend and they would give you counsel, they would defend you. That's exactly the language that Paul is borrowing from. And so Jesus is defending you against the accusation of Satan. Okay, And in fact, we know from Hebrews 7.25 that he does it in the heavenlies. He's making constant intercession for you. He's your counselor and he's on retainer permanently on your behalf. Think about that. Well, then not only does Jesus do that, but he says, I'm leaving, and I'm going to send you another paracleta. So now Jesus is in the heavenly realm, and he's providing you this intercession, and also the Holy Spirit is now with us, and he's also providing intercession, And, and what this section is all about in Romans is that he's praying for you on your behalf because you don't even know what you should be praying for, Okay. You talk about God giving us all things that we need. And the more I read, friends, the more I see I'm really worthless and God has done everything for me, okay? I mean, what a great conclusion to draw, but it's true, okay? And so let's continue. It says, and he who searches... Now, this is a switch now to the Father. He who searches the heart's nose what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the idea is only the Holy Spirit knows what we actually need before God because he's God himself. And the same thought is here that the Spirit searches even the depths of God. Why? Well, because he's God. Okay, and again, this is a great actual um, Trinitarian passage. That's not the point that Paul is trying to make. He's not trying to prove that God is three in one, but He's just showing us that, yes, in fact, the Holy Spirit is what's necessary if we want to understand the things of God. Now, again, Paul proceeds to use this Greek philosophic principle that like is known only by like. And this is something that the Corinthians would be familiar with. Why? Well, because they were, they were secularists. They were those who were outside of the Jewish faith, and they would have understood a lot of these things from the pagan world, especially Greek philosophy. So in verse 11, Paul continues, he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? So let me just stop there. The idea is, remember, the category Paul is using is he's just talking about men. So don't think that, well, God would understand what they're thinking. Well, he's not using that comparison. He's just talking about men knowing the thoughts of men. And so if Jim Palmer is thinking something, I don't know what he's thinking. He's probably thinking, Eric, are you going to end this at any time soon? And I don't know that. <laughs> but I wouldn't know that. Only Jim knows, right? And Larry and all of you, right? You only know what you're thinking. And so the idea is no man can perceive what you're thinking, okay? And so then he continues. and says, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Why? Well, because he's God, okay? And so only the Spirit of God can know the things of God, and what Paul is proving is that no man can come up with the wisdom that's from God. Only God can reveal that. And therefore, we shouldn't boast in our own Sophia, our own power, but rather boast in God only. That's the idea. Listen to what Gordon Fee says here. And he's talking about how Paul is going to reduce or get... He's going to whole, Maybe say it this way. He's going to do a 180 on the Corinthians. He's going to get rid of their understanding of spiritual... And he's going to give them the true understanding of what spiritual means from a biblical perspective. That's what Gordon Fee is going to talk about here. He says this, quote, This is precisely the linkage he needs, that is Paul, in his argument with the Corinthians. By their own experience of the Spirit of God, they consider themselves to be spiritual. Apparently, they have thought of spirituality mostly in terms of ecstasy and experience. Boy, does that sound like today, right? which has led some of them to deny the physical body, on the one hand, into a sense of having arrived. That would be that they believe that they're completely spiritual and they have all wisdom, on the other hand. And so then Fee continues. He says, what Paul is about to do is to present the spirit as the key to the proper understanding of the gospel itself, especially of his preaching. So again, these Corinthians were thinking they're spiritual. Why? Because they had an elevated understanding of rhetoric, And they thought that they were smarter and of a higher status than other people around them. What's interesting is Paul is saying, no, that's not spiritual. Spiritual people are those who were given wisdom from God and therefore owe their entire salvation to God. And they're the ones who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's doing a reversal on them. Um, Friends, think about today, the pagans that you run into, a lot of times they will say, well, I am spiritual. And the only definition to someone who is spiritual according to the Scriptures are those who believe in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're not spiritual. And I think this would be a great passage, this section, to bring up to our pagan neighbors, who maybe they're in the emerging church movement, maybe they're just following people like Oprah Winfrey and that Marianne Williamson and that sort of rubbish. This is a great section that we can bring in and say, no, you're not spiritual, because those who are spiritual are those who believe the gospel and therefore give glory only to God. Verse 12, Paul continues, he says, Now we have received um, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. This now here is resumptive. Okay, So in other words, he is building off of verse 11, because remember in verse 11 we saw that only the Spirit can reveal things of God. And so now what he's saying is, We have that spirit. It's not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And here comes the purpose statement. Remember, anytime you see a so that, that's typically the purpose statement. It's hina in Greek. It's so that we may know, and this brings us back to verse 9, where Paul had quoted from Isaiah 64, right? And so what may we know? All that God has prepared for those who love him. That is the gospel. In the results of believing the gospel, eternal life, and all those things associated with it. So those things we may know, and in fact, let me talk about what these things are. This is probably a link back to the gospel according to Fee in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three through twenty-four, where Paul said, "This we preach Christ crucified." That's the core of the gospel. Okay, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, that is God's elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So those things that were freely given to us, are the, it's the gospel, the person and work of Christ, and the results thereof. That is the salvation. So at any rate, that's what has been freely given to us. And I love this term, freely given. It comes from the term charizomai. This is a deponent verb, which means it has a middle passive ending, but it's, it's active. Okay, So it's active ending. But we see the noun actually used in Romans 6.23 where it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the idea, friends, is that what he has given us, we didn't do anything for. And it's not the idea that you and I as human beings had to reach out the 1%. God went 99% and you and I reached out the last 1%. No. The idea of freely given is that he gave us all things. Okay, the idea that we, even our salvation, remember Ephesians 2 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And in that verse, by the way, you can prove grammatically that Paul's referring to both the faith and the grace. They're not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. And so, though even our faith, friends, is freely given to us. Therefore, I can't boast in front of my next door neighbor and say, you know what, I was a little bit smarter than you because I trusted in Jesus and you didn't. No, no, no. It's only by the grace of God that I'm in this camp and therefore I can go lovingly before them and present them the gospel. Perhaps they're the elect. No one has an E on their head, friends. Maybe they're the elect and they just need to hear the gospel and God is going to do his work on them, right? So that's the good news. We're just mail carriers. God does the work. Okay, now it's neat here, friends. I think it's neat because Paul now has defended his preaching. He's shown us a great apologetic, and I'll explain that in a second here. First Corinthians 2:13. He continues and says, "Which things that are the things that accompany with salvation, the gospel, we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words." Okay. Now, it's interesting, Paul is now given a full apologetic to those at Corinth who were boasting in their own spiritual status while implying Paul was merely carnal. In other words, friends, think about this. Those at Corinth, and we see this in Christendom today, people end up boasting in human wisdom, okay? But Paul is saying, now remember, Paul isn't saying that he wasn't speaking in words. He was teaching in words, but those in Corinth... They believed in the power of human wisdom in human words. So the idea isn't whether you're mystical or you have words. In other words, if you're of the Spirit, you have a mystical understanding of God. No. Paul is talking about words. It's just that his words are of God. Okay? His words were revealed by the Holy Spirit. And they come from God. The words that came from the teachers that the Corinthians respected came from mere humans. And they wowed people with rhetorical prowess but they were completely empty for salvation. And so Paul now has turned the tables and he's shown that he is actually the one who is spiritual, not them. And so this is, again, a link back to 1 Corinthians 1.17 where he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. Why? Well, so that, another purpose statement, the cross of Christ would not be made void. Because the power of salvation is God's. It's not in Paul's ability to deliver the message. It's not in his cleverness, his rhetorical skills, his prowess. It's not in that. That's what the Corinthians were boasting in. And that's why they're rejecting Paul. They're saying, you know, this joker, when he comes, he certainly doesn't look very persuasive, and he certainly doesn't sound very persuasive. His, in fact, we know people that sound a lot better than him, and so let's start listening to them. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. The words that I speak, the power isn't in what I'm saying or how I'm presenting it. It's in the actual message itself because they're, it's from God. So he has defended his own preaching there. God revealed his truth in words. Again, we have to pound that home. It's not a mystical understanding that Paul is advocating, but rather he spoke words. Let me point this out again, the same verse we just looked at. There's some debate. Notice I have the the section that I have, the thoughts and the words I have in bread. They're italicized in your Bible, if everyone sees that. And the debate is, how should we translate that? Because these don't exist in the Greek text. In other words, Paul literally is saying here, taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. And we see this often in the New Testament where there'll be words left out where the Greek writer implies or he figures out that you know what he's implying. Okay, So it's it's up to you to fill in the blank, so to speak. But there has been some debate as to whether or not the New American Standard or whatever um, Bible has it right. Is it thoughts and words? Let me show you some of the choices. The King James Version... If you have a King James Version, it'll say combining spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, now, this has led to all sorts of uh, speculation. For instance, some people have used this passage to prove a really good concept in hermeneutics where they think that this means interpreting Scripture in light of Scripture. In other words, spiritual things in light of spiritual things. Okay, the problem is that's a great concept, by the way. We should always interpret Scripture in light of other scripture, because God's word cannot contradict itself. The problem is, is that's not what Paul's talking about. And so we would be violating a key hermeneutic rule, is that if we want to understand what the Bible is saying, we have to understand what the author intended to say. And so he's not intending to talk about weighing scripture with scripture. That's a good thing to do, but that's not Paul's point here. Okay? Now let me give you some evidence that I think he's talking... I think the New American Standard gets it right. But before that, let me show you one other option. The New International Version has a margin note that talks about combining spiritual truths to spiritual men. So in other words, here, where it says words, that would actually be men. Now, why did why did they put men in there? Well, because in verses 14 through 16, the verses that are going to be coming, Paul switches to a, uh, talking about the contrast between the natural man and the spiritual one. Okay, And so they figure, well, that's what he's referring to, spiritual man. But more than likely, this is what's being referred to. I think the New American Standard gets it right, talking about thoughts and words, because notice Paul up here says, which things we also speak. Well, what things were those? Well, the things associated with the gospel that, in fact, the Spirit has revealed. And, in fact, down here, this is interesting. This term speak is in the present tense because he's continuously ongoing in the the process of speaking these things in the gospel. And this down here, this idea of combining, is the same thing. It's also in the present tense, and therefore we see this link between the two. So the things we also speak relate to the gospel alluded to back in verse 12, and it's in words, okay? So thoughts and words, I think, are the best way to go, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? You look kind of puzzled. (laughs) It's probably me. It's probably the presenter. Okay. All right, so it's thoughts and words. It's a new American standard. I think it's a right, okay? So if you have a different version, maybe just jot that on a note card or something and insert that or write it right on your Bible, depending on how you like to do things there. Okay, so now we see that the natural man, friends, is spiritually blind, completely unable to see the things of God. Verse 14, Paul continues. He says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Do you remember back in 1 Corinthians, I think it was 1.30, we saw those great three words, but of him? Yeah, we were, yeah do you remember? so we were completely lost. We couldn't perceive the things of God, but of him. It literally says. In other words, salvation is completely of God. Well, here we see another three words in the Greek text that completely shows the inability of man to perceive God's wisdom. Okay, And these three words are these, ou, dunetai, ganonai. U is not, it's a negative. Dunatai has to do with ability. In fact, power, and often, um, that's where we get our term dynamite, by the way, it ends up having to do with power. Um, but the, the whole point is it has to do with ability, whether you can do something or not do something. So here, clearly, with the negative, you're not able to know. You're completely unable. This is from Gnosis, or um, Gnosco. You're not able to know. It's an infinitive. So these three words show the idea that you cannot, you are completely unable to know if you're a natural man. So it's complete inability. And again, friends, this should be devastating to those who claim that we have prevenient grace, as the Arminians do, that enable a human being to understand these things. Prevenient grace is the doctrine by which Arminians believe that God has given grace to all men and women to understand the gospel. Well, nowhere do you see this concept in the Scriptures. The Scriptures clearly state that all men are in this state, that they cannot see or understand the things of God unless God pours his grace specifically upon the elect. And again, that's why Acts 13.48, as many as... Well, let me read the passage so I don't goof it up. <laughs> it's as many as were predestined, believed, I think is how it says. Or appointed. Yeah, there you go. That's the better term. Listen to this, Acts 13.48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay? Well, what does that indicate? Well, it indicates that not all believed. So therefore, how can you hold to this doctrine of prevenient grace? Because if the Armenians were right, all could have believed because they all had prevenient grace. But it was only to those who were appointed. Why? Because the natural man can't understand. It's a complete inability. We see the same concept in Romans 3.11, where it's, uh, Paul wrote, "There is none who understands; there is none who seeks God." And oftentimes, I focus in on the latter part of this verse: "There is none who seeks God." And the reason why I focus in on that, and probably the reason why you do as well, is because of the seeker-sensitive movement. They have built churches for no one because no one <laughs> seeks after God, right? So they've built they've built churches for a category that does not exist. But what's interesting is sometimes I bypass this phrase; is equally important. None who understands. No, not one. There's none who understands the things of God. So how do you become saved? Well, God has to give you the ability. And so again, he gets all the glory. Only the regenerate friends seek and find. So when you're reading the Bible and there's this language about God honoring those who are genuinely seeking him, realize that behind the scenes, God has been the one originally that sought them, given them the ability to believe, and therefore now they're seekers. Okay? Okay. But God is always the one who does the prior work. That's how it is in the Scriptures. Verses 15 through 16, Paul continues. He says, But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have what? The mind of Christ. I want to talk about this term appraises. It comes from anacrino. And crino, when you see crino, it always means to judge. And so what's interesting here is it's to make a judgment on the basis of careful and detailed information to judge carefully, to evaluate carefully. But what's interesting, it's only for the spiritual man. He's the only one that can judge this information carefully. Okay, now why? Because he's the only one that has the information? No, the world sees the gospel, the same words that you and I do. That is the unregenerate world. The difference is that the Holy Spirit now enables them to perceive their need and also to believe and understand the words that are written, okay? And so that's what we need, friends. It's not that the words are somehow obscure. It's plain as day, but it's that in their depravity they can't understand these things. So there's this idea that the unbelievers, again, they don't have the ability to perceive or believe, but you and I do. In fact, we can appraise these things because of God's grace. Notice here also, this is a point that Fee again points out, that the mind of Christ indicates that the term for mind, naos and pneuma, the spirit, are interchangeable. Let me explain why that's significant. A lot of people try to use these passages in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 as a way to try to prove the trichotomy view of human nature. Well, what Gordon Fee is pointing out is the way the mind and the spirit are used is they're used interchangeably. So in other words, nobody can say, well, here we see clear examples of body, mind, and spirit, and therefore a person is made up of three components. But because what we see throughout scriptures, friends, is that spirit and soul, they're used interchangeably, okay? And oftentimes even the mind. So the mind of Christ is having a spiritual mind, one that can perceive these things. That's how it's being used. So no one who is a trichotomist can use this passage and try to claim that we see evidence of a threefold nature of a human person. I'm, I'm a dichotomist. This is nothing to break fellowship over, but it's, I believe that the terms spirit and soul, those are often used interchangeably. And so a person is made of the physical portion and the spiritual portion or the soul. And so when you die, uh, remember uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, your body goes into the ground and your spirit or soul, your immaterial portion goes to be with the Lord. That's the idea. And so Gordon Fee is pointing out, don't let any trichotomist try to use this against you. Okay, all right. Let me give you a summary here, friends. Many people in our day think of themselves as spiritual, yet are blind to the truth of the gospel. Paul's words to the Corinthians are a powerful reminder of the depravity and inability of mankind to seek and respond to the true living God. The reality and significance of Christ and his atoning work will forever be the only wisdom that can save men. This wisdom, Paul has proven, comes only as a gift from God. Let me just say this, two applications, one for the unregenerate and one for us, the regenerate. Again, the unregenerate that you and I are going to be meeting in this world, they're claiming to be spiritual. Okay, They're claiming that they have insights into the spirit world. They claim that they can know the things of the universe, that is, their universal God that exists. And what they are in fact doing is they're violating the very theme that Paul has talked about here. They're not spiritual because those who are spiritual are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Because those who believe in Jesus Christ are those who can perceive and understand the gospel. And that ability was only given to them by the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, who comes and proceeds from God and who is in fact God himself. Okay, Those who are spiritual. And you and I, friends, would do well to take passages like this and explain it to our neighbors who are claiming to be spiritual. This is a great apologetic against those who are claiming to be spiritual. Okay, Now, for you and I who are regenerate, this is a passage that speaks to us in this sense. This is a church, especially this church, is a church who loves doctrine. We love knowledge. And it's good. And it's right that we love the things of the Word. I love Bob has a great... Tell your story about your professor who said he can do with our ignorance far less. Um, Listen to this story. This illustrates... We don't boast in ignorance. Listen to this.
1: Dr. Ray Levine was one of my teachers at North Central Bible College. And he says, I know uh, God doesn't need our intelligence, but he needs our ignorance a lot less. (laughs)
0: I just love that, so in other words friends let 's not boast in our ignorance that 's not what Paul is saying he 's not saying let 's just be a bunch of dunderheads who don 't understand anything and just you know give all the glory to God. no, the idea that here 's the idea is that if we understand the things of God, then we realize that only came from God, okay so again, we see compatibility the remember compatibilism, the idea that yes, you and I are to study our scriptures, the scriptures for all they're worth. But at the end of the day, when we receive understanding and knowledge, who gets the glory? It's not me. I'm no genius. It's God who enabled us to understand these things. And so he gets all the glory. In that way, you and I can approach our neighbors who are perishing, and we can treat them as those who God may save as well, because you and I were one day once in their shoes as well. Okay? So this takes away any boasting, any pride. We know that it all comes from God, and therefore he gets all the glory. And I think that's an important yeah, application. Now, with that, I'll take your comments or questions. Yeah, Larry. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Yeah, right there. that's right. That's all right.
3: right, I have uh, two things. Yeah. Uh, first of all, in verse 12, it, where it says that the, verse, the first word is now.
0: Yeah. Okay, yep.
3: I believe that is dispensationally significant. Okay. Because there is a... Um, a sense in which that, that it's saying that, that in the in the Old Testament that the old that the Spirit was not available in the same sense he is now in the New Testament.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Let me just say this time: the only way anyone is ever saved is by the Holy Spirit coming. So, for instance, when we talk about the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and enabling now people to receive the things of God, what I think is the great promise is number one that the Spirit would come upon all flesh. Okay, as we see in Joel chapter two, and so it's not just for the Jews now, but it's for the Gentiles as well. It's not just for the priesthood and not just for those elect that God has selected um, in the sense I, I want to I let me backtrack because the it is given for the elect, but I'm saying it's not just for the priestly class, it's not just for the the Israelites, it's for the Gentiles. it's for both male and female. Uh, that they may all prophesy, and so it 's for all people, so what I would see this as is the now would be resumptive to what Paul was saying earlier, okay, so I wouldn't think that it would lead back to the old testament per se do, do you see what i 'm saying well here's but, yeah here 's what i 'm thinking. Uh,
3: it, Jesus said in, in uh, John, I think it's 1417, yeah. that the Spirit is is with you and talking to the uh, the disciples and he will be in you. So that there's yep. a difference between the Old and the New Testament ministries of the Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, and, and there's some some degree of, there, there, well, there's actually a lot of difference between the Old and the New Testament in this sense that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would come upon people for service and then right. he would sometimes depart. Right. But in this sense, you're right. The Spirit always abides with us. But I'm just saying, in Paul's line of reasoning, he's linking back with what he said prior oh, yeah, you're right. with the now. There. Yeah. Yeah. You're yep. Right there. So, but yeah, it's a good good thing to be thinking about. Yeah.
3: And the second thing, in verse 14. Yeah. The, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Yeah. And and uh, you were mentioning the fact that that the the natural man cannot understand the things of God. Um. There is, I, I, I attended a, a Bible study, or I shouldn't say a Bible study, but a theology study in mm-hmm. my former church that was, that was studying the theology of Jonathan Edwards. Oh. And uh, Jonathan Edwards believed that, that the natural man can understand the things of God. It's just that, that uh, he, he believes that, that, the, that the proper understanding would be that the natural man does not welcome the things of God.
0: So it's a volitional issue. It's not an idea of cognitive. It's it's not a cognitive understanding issue.
3: Right. Exactly.
0: Let me just, yeah. Let me just address that real quick. Everybody, if you have your Bibles, turn to Titus, uh, chapter one, verse fifteen. And let me just throw out my two cents on that issue. Again, Jonathan Edwards is a um, a great scholar, and I agree with him on ninety nine. But let me just throw this out there. I think the cognitive abilities. Now, don't get me wrong. The problem with the natural man is a volitional problem and it's primarily a moral one. Okay, They can understand how words are used. The problem comes into they don't want to believe it. Bob is using the example of Rudolf Bultmann, a great German theologian. He can tell you exactly what the Bible says. He just doesn't believe it. It's not for him. <laughs> okay, So you're absolutely right. But let me just throw this out there. Still, sin has affected even our intellect. and And there is an idea where Our depravity has affected our reasoning, our ability to reason as well. And evidence, I think, is found here in Titus 1.15. And there's probably other passages um, that I just don't have on the top of my head. But Paul said here, he says, To the pure all things are pure. Of course, that would be those who are saved. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind. Now that term there is nous, and that has to do with the faculty of reasoning. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And so the idea there is, is that they don't even reason well. Why? Well, because it's defiled because of depravity. So in some sense, do you ever hear the world when you're watching the news and you think, that is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my life? Well, of course, that's, that's because their mind is defiled. And they think really bad. And so you, it drives you nuts as a Christian. That's why you're praying for the rapture every day. Maranatha, our Lord, come, right? Right. <laughs> Because you can't stand it, and we're just like oh. so. There, so what I'm pointing out is, yes, it's a volitional issue. Um, certainly, it's a moral issue, but there also is an, um, a portion that it is a cognitive ability as well. Yeah.
1: There's another issue that I, that I agree with Edwards about. Okay, and I think it's great that you brought up Edwards. And you see this in Romans chapter 10. Edwards made a distinction between moral inability, and natural inability.
0: Mm, Okay. Okay?
1: All right. And so I believe that it's a valid set of categories based on Romans chapter 10. Okay. Because in Romans 10, when Paul is praying for the salvation of Israel, he goes into a section where he alludes to Deuteronomy, where people are saying, well, who's going to go to heaven and get it for us or who's going to go down to the death and, and so on? But he says the Word is very near you, even in your mouth, Mm -hmm. the Word of Faith that we're preaching. Yeah. Okay, so here's the distinction. The terms of the Gospel are not so obscure or crazy or irrational that somebody can't believe or understand what we're talking about. In other words, we're saying there was a man, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who died for sins was raised from the dead, and that what God asks us to do is just believe what actually really happened, right. and what really happened has been proven in history before witnesses. Right, simple. So we're not saying to the oh, sinner, God. <sighs> what God wants you to do is sprout wings and fly to the moon. <laughs> okay? <laughs> what what God is saying to the sinner is you should just believe what's really true. Yeah. Okay. So Edwards would say, naturally, that's possible to do. Why can't you believe what's really true? But there's this moral inability that causes rebellion against the gospel. And that's what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians. By the way, Eric, you did a fabulous job. Thank you. Uh, And so the moral inability keeps us from doing what... God is telling us to do, even though what he 's telling you to do is actually very reasonable. Just believe what's really true anyhow okay?
3: yeah in that same study they, t- they talked about a-, a man I believe he was a, a scholar at Harvard okay. who under- who is a-, a Jonathan Edwards scholar okay and this guy unsaved, he said that I understand perfectly well what Edwards is saying he says and, I- and, I- and it makes logical sense he says but he says, I believe he 's wrong. And he says, because I believe he's wrong, he says, I know if he's right, I'm going to hell. He says, but I refuse to believe it.
1: Wow. Wow. The perfect illustration. Yeah, uh, Tom, that's a perfect illustration of moral inability that Edwards was talking about. Wow,
2: wow, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay,
2: rapid fire. Two questions here. Verse 12, it talks about no. Is it uh, in your studies, did you cross-reference it, or is it in the same original uh, when you go to... Verse 12.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, when you talk about the word no, when you cross-referenced that or did a research on that, is that in the same context? Uh, I'm
0: sorry, what word, though?
2: The word no, K-N-O-W.
0: Oh, okay. Is, so, it, you, yeah. is it
2: also in the same context and usage as you find, like, in that First John five thirteen passages and following in that whole section?
0: You know, I think it is probably Gnosko. I, I don't remember if it's Oida or Gnosko, but the point being is both Oida and Gnosco, as far as knowledge is concerned, has to do with the intellect, it has to do with facts, and it has to do with knowledge. Typically, gnosko, and I think that's the one that's used here, mm-hmm. it has to do with knowledge that comes typically experientially and in, in from um, in, inquiry, so okay. therefore um, knowledge of the scriptures, whereas... Um, oida. Oh, oh, it is oida. Well, then that would be... I I, good, I'm glad. I'm glad. Okay, so if okay. oida is used there... Typically, that's knowledge that's intuitively, um, so you intuitively know, but that doesn't mean it's subjective, okay? It has to do with facts, knowing right. things that are factually true. But Paul, his, his wish here is just that you know them as a believer. You know these things to be true. In other words, it's almost second hat to you. It's, second, it's, it's because you know them so well. It's, it's that idea? Do you see what I'm saying? It's, okay. almost, it's intuitive. It's like a baseball player. A baseball player, when he throws a curve, he doesn't have to think, well, I'm going to throw a curve, and I have to put a lot of spin in that ball, and I better hold the lace. He, he does it. Now, d- <laughs> does he know how to do it? He really knows how to do it. It's in that sense, you know it so well, it's old hat to you. So it has to do with intellect, it has to do with facts, and it has to do with knowledge, and that comes from God, and it comes from the, go- the gospel, and it comes from words, not mystically. But he's just using that to illustrate the point that you know it so well because it's a part of you. That's typically the nuance. Now, a lot of times, Oida and Gnosko, they're used so interchangeably, especially by Paul that there's hardly any difference. John is typically the one that you'll see a little bit more nuance between Oida and Gnosko.
2: Okay. So and then yeah. another question is, is through this whole section, I didn't know if you deliberately not say this or oh, whether you yeah. drew into it or not, but the doctrine of inspi- I mean uh, illumination.
0: Oh, okay. As far do you, as far as uh, how
2: are, you know the uh, spiritual man, how is you know the difference of his illumination and non illumination of the natural man?
0: Yeah, and again, it's by the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit enables. When, for instance, you and I hear the gospel, we hear the words of God, the natural man, and as Bob and Tom have talked about, volitionally they may understand them, but volitionally they want nothing to do with them. But the idea of illumination is that the Holy Spirit acts on us, and it does so in a sense where it's not an option. You and I, in fact, will believe them. In fact, that's what we call the doctrine of irresistible grace. He will act upon us in such a way that not only do you and I perceive them, is true. Think about it. we have notitia. Okay, we have the knowledge of salvation. We understand those things. We have a census. We say, yes, these things are true. And then we have fiducia, the trust. I say, it's for me. And so the Holy Spirit does those three things for the believer. A man like Rudolf Baltmann, he would have notitia and he would have the knowledge of all those things. But Perhaps at a census, he says, I don't really think that those things are true. Or perhaps, he says, I even think those are, things are true, but I want nothing to do with them because I want to live my old life. That would be the problem of he doesn't want... It's not for me. The demons know the Scriptures. Uh, yeah, they know the things yeah. of God, but they don't want anything part. Why? Because they don't have fiducia. So, yeah. yeah.
1: I want to make a quick application. I know we're about yeah. out of time. I want to uh, thank Eric for this. I want to testify to the fact that misunderstanding this section that we're studying now was harmed my life for years. I was in deception because of misunderstanding in this section. And let me tell you how I was deceived and why. I believed that Paul was making a contrast between one kind of Christian and another kind of Christian. Oh, okay. Okay. In other words, there were the spiritual Christians who had supernatural special knowledge that were better than the other ones. Hmm. And then there were the carnal Christians who were just kind of ordinary. Hmm. So I was on a quest to be one of the spiritual Christians,
3: sure, sure, yeah. to
1: be better than the average Christian out there. Yeah. What delivered me from that thinking was Gordon Fee's commentary wow. in the late nineteen 19- I don't know the, I can't remember the copyright date when that was first published, but somewhere in the late 80s. I got a copy of Gordon Fee's Commentary in on First Corinthians and read it. Wow! And it totally transformed my life. I've never been the same again. Wow. And what Fee proved to me from the Greek and from his scholarly work was that the contrast was between the lost and the saved, yeah. not the ordinary Christians and the superior Christians. Yeah. All right? And that revel, that just, if you ever have been in something that wasn't quite right, Okay, and a lot of you can relate to that. <laughs> I have been, yeah, I can Okay. <laughs> One of the things that's the most helpful is when you come to understand what what wasn't right about what you were in. Hmm. In order to understand, okay, this is why it was wrong and here's what the truth is. Then you start getting some comfort. Hmm. And then you start feeling like, I think the Lord's going to take care of me and everything's going to be okay.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: so we want to help you get to that state. And the state is basically the gospel itself.
0: Isn't it interesting, too, Bob, before we go, what enabled you to make that change was understanding what the Bible actually says. In other words, it was yeah. the idea of you did better exegetical work. You pulled out the meaning from the text yeah. rather than reading in your own meaning. Yeah,
1: because, it, you know, on the surface you can read it and it says, well, the carnal man and right. the spiritual man. and." And so there's all these books out there. The one that harmed me the most was Washington knee and the spiritual man. Well, who was that? Well, some special or, kind of Christian that transcended the ordinary Christians. Yeah. And he proved to me that that was in an error, right. and it changed my whole thinking.
0: So good theology always stems from good exegesis.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and I hope I get my voice. Pray for me. I got to <laughs> preach a sermon.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll see everyone upstairs. We'll see you next week too.